Konnichiwa, hajimemaste, watashi wa woodland desu, yoroshiku onegaishimasu. Just kidding. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Not Ready for Rhyme Time. I'm your host, Taylor Woodland, and we are at episode 15. Woo! We've hit another increment of five. I always feel so accomplished when I hit an increment of five. 15 episodes is an amazing start for a new podcaster. Woo! Because most podcasts tend to die before they hit episode 10. So, let's just keep on trucking. <laughs> Today I have more poems and short stories from my open submissions that I had a couple weekend, weeks ago that I will be reading to you. Next weekend I will have an episode for you, though I will be recording it this weekend. So, yay for extra material. I won't be able to record that weekend because I'll be in Hawaii! Yay, Hawaii! Fun stuffs! But enough of me rambling. Let's get right on into the poetry! Our first poem is called Bridges by Kennedy Boone. Bridges. I'll set my world on fire, like the one I used to burn our bridges. They were covered in gold, sparkling and clean, and still I set them ablaze. Some people are never satisfied, and I fear I will always crave more, more flame and more bridges to burn. That was Bridges by Kennedy Boone. You can follow Kennedy on Twitter at K underscore B underscore Boone, B-O-O-N-E. Thank you, Kennedy. Our next poem is called Somebody Has to Stop It by Indaba Sabanda. Somebody has to stop it. All too often we watch them do their antics. All too often we keep away from that arena. We always want to be left alone in peace. We always say that pitch is crazy and dirty, but their crazy actions and decisions there bring us uncertainty and disgrace every day. All too often we watch them play a rough game. All too often we keep telling ourselves we hate it. But if our nation has to have a recovering future, somebody has to get madness out of that arena. That was Somebody Has to Stop It by Indaba Sibanda. Thank you, Indaba. Our next poem is called Wildfire by Wiss August. Wildfire. Some days she was serenity, the sweetest of voices, the softest of touches, kisses as gentle as the first light of dawn. Some days she was a raging gale. She had a pain-nurtured storm brewing at her very core, a wrath of frustration unleashed on this treacherous world. Yet, even on her darkest day, she was still my bright lodestar. She was wildfire, I was wind, Together we knew we would win. That was Wildfire by Wiss August. You can follow Wiss on Instagram at w.august.writes. Thank you, Wiss. Our next poem is called Drunk on Life by Lexi Villa. Drunk on Life. You smell of rose petals and alcohol. Innocent and addictive you are. But in the end, we were but lovers, drunk on life. That was Drunk on Life by Lexi Villa. 
you can check out more of Lexi's work on Wattpad at Do Your Worst. Thank you, Lexi. Our next poem is called When Jesters Wear the Crowns by Catherine Taylor. When Jesters Wear the Crowns. Dismount, your literary high horse. Dismiss the Beltrist school of thought. Time is ripe for sober intercourse, but not the hanky-panky sort. You scoff at fellow authors who write a story of romance, a bit different from your treatise, but the tango is still a dance. The genre of fiction you abhor, the depth of literature it lacks. Terrible writing, you might say, but let's look at actual facts. While your work may be esteemed among your peers of classic tomes, it is wilting in a library instead of worldwide readers' homes. Will your name be just a footnote in some critique of writing history? Didn't they write such and such? But your work remains a mystery. At heaven's table of great writers such as Dickens, Poe, and Twain, there's a setting for the authors of the books which you disdain. And if their sales reflect the love while your book still gathers dust, O oh, author, your dictum need become in the reader we hope and trust. All that praise from the elites and their educated views mean little to the readers and the stories which they choose. If you're writing to please the critics with your metaphors so grand and your eloquently written phrases and words no one understands, you've forgotten what a story is, the children's books you read, which inspired your love of stories as you snuggled in your bed. No fervative meaning or hyperbole, no societal commentary, just simple told narrations making characters legendary. I've matured, you might argue, and my writing must be deep. But where does its value lie if it's putting me to sleep? Forgive me, literary writer, I mean no harm or disrespect. I wish simply to remind you, pride oft make us forget. Writers bear hearts and souls when their thoughts are put to page. Be it literary or whimsical, still a story on a stage. Critique is hard enough without authors being cruel or lauding their credentials from some famous writing school. One's trash, another's treasure, and those condescending frowns are just silly in a world where jesters often wear the crowns. There's a need for every genre and the tales they impart, and the value of a story lies within the reader's heart. So stop looking down your noses and applaud your fellow scribe, and we'll all feel that much better without some petty diatribe. That was When Gestures Wear the Crowns by Katherine Taylor. You can check out more of Katherine's work on katherinetaylor.co.nz. I'll leave a link for it in the timestamp for you. That was actually a very funny poem. It made me laugh quite a lot when I first read it. Thank you, Katherine. That was our last poem for the podcast. We will now be moving into our short stories. I have two for you today, and then we will be done. Until next week, of course. Now let's move on into our first short story. It is titled Three Stories by Ive Ilokita. Three Stories. Three stories stand between you and the end of this day. Three more stories, and if everything goes according to plan, you'll exit the elevator into your home within a step and a half to your Prince Charming who's waiting for you at the same spot for the last eight years. 
You married him at the age of 20 and wanted to have a child right away, but this job, this important job, you got in a faraway city forced you to push back the decision to turn the passive into active by making the dream to have children come true. Meanwhile, he's hatching his balls and waits for you to come back from work every day bearing baskets of money. You're not angry with him, just disappointed in yourself that out of all the places in the world, you compromised for a house in the suburbs and couldn't convince him to move to the big city. Stomping your feet, you think just three more stories and this awful day will be over. It's not the work that's killing you every day. It's the drive, the long distances, and the long line for the elevator, especially during the summer. Sometimes you feel like you stew in your own juice. You know there are surveillance cameras everywhere, but it doesn't bother you. If there's an unpleasant smell, you'll make sure that it's not you, and even if there are zillions of other people at the elevator, you'll still spray your cologne all over yourself peacefully. They can go F themselves. It's definitely better than their stench. You smile. Theoretically, the elevator's screen shows that you've reached your story, and the door will open in a few seconds. You know that it's the end now. You've finally arrived so you smile. The door opens while exciting scripts are running through your mind of how you'll enter your home, how he'll run toward you and scoop your body into his arms. Maybe later he'll take you to bed to make a dream of yours come true. Or how he prepared a romantic dinner to make it up to you for the awful day you had, although it wasn't his fault. Your smile widens a little more, your eyes are closing when the elevator door completes its divide for you. Taking one more step with your head bowed, you suddenly stop. You've never loved any girl. In the locker rooms at school, you were one of those who always said, yuck, but this woman that stands in front of you now, her smile does something completely different to you. For a moment, you can't take your eyes off her. You lower your gaze again. I wish I had such a lovely smile, you think to yourself, and fall in love with her even more. It all happens so quickly. She throws a shy, hello, and enters the elevator in your place, and the door slides closed. You're left there, standing alone, right at the entrance to your home, and you think that if only you had the courage to shoot your hand into the closing gap between the doors and ride down the three stories with her. But you don't have that kind of courage. You just go home. He sits there in his briefs on the couch and doesn't even mutter hello to you. The remainder of the sly smile you had is wiped off your face. You remember that during the last few years, there were countless smiles wiped off your pretty face. Once upon a time, it was different. Eight years ago, you had an alluring smile just like the woman from the elevator, and now all you have left are the scripts running through your mind during the three-story ride on the elevator. You think again about the smile of the woman and fall further in love with it, hoping you'll meet her again tomorrow at one of the three stories on the elevator. You don't know, or maybe just don't care, that this smile she wears is the smile you lost a long time ago. End of story. That was Three Stories by Ivo Lokita. Thank you, Ive. We will be moving on into our last short story, which is titled Wish by Jay Hurtle. Wish. I listened to her walking across the kitchen linoleum. 
Any second now, the screen door will open and she'll interrupt my morning. I know she doesn't intend to, but you would think after 30 years she would know this is my place. Back porch, hot coffee, an English muffin, and sometimes a morning sky painted by the sun, fiery orange streaks crossing the horizon. That's my place. This morning the sun is lurking behind gray clouds. A promise of Christmas snow? It doesn't happen very often, but you never know. A good snow would be nice about now. It might take the bite out of the unwelcome news. The heavy clouds are keeping winter's bite out of the bitter cold that rolled in Thursday night. I don't like the cold anymore. Hot coffee used to be enough to lubricate, but the older I get, well, nothing shakes the cold away. I have my car hearts on over my pajamas. My granddaughter would not approve of this muddle of fashions, but she's not here. That's probably a good thing. She's not going to take the news well. The screen door hinge complains, proclaiming my wife's arrival. You're up early, she chimes. She carries two fresh mugs of hot coffee. I've been getting up at the same time for as long as we've been married, but I say nothing to her. Her memory is getting sicker every day. The doctor said it would be a slow process. The memory loss, that is. He was wrong. She hands me a cup and then plants a kiss on my cheek. Her hand comes up and wipes away lipstick that isn't there. She believes it is a habit of many years. I don't waste any time recognizing she will likely forget everything I say before lunchtime. The damn dog is dead, I say quietly. She says nothing. She just sits there in the twin rocker, smiling at the morning. That damn dog. It was a gift last Christmas for my grandson. Becky, that's my wife, was determined to get the boy his first puppy. She hadn't taken sick yet. Christmas was still the most special time of year for her. The pup wasn't much. As a matter of fact, it was free. Free was good. The past three years have been tough. The government makes it harder and harder for a farmer to make a decent living. I hoped things would be better when the Republicans took over, and it was for a short while, but last year's crop was hit hard by ear rot. No politician could stop that. Not much money was put in the bank. Becky was at the Walmart when she first saw the dog. A little girl and her mama had the pups in an old cardboard box. There were six of them in that old tattered box. Of course my wife would pick the runt. That little whippersnapper couldn't run three steps without tripping over itself. But that didn't matter to her. She wanted it for our grandson. We left there with one more passenger sitting in my pickup truck. That puppy peed twice on the way back to the house. I fussed about the smell, but she just rolled down her window a little more. Her and her smile never parting ways. I glance over at her, sitting in that rocker. She has that same smile on her face. She doesn't understand that Wish is dead. Wish was the name my grandson tagged the puppy with. His daddy, my son-in-law, the Democrat, didn't think the notion of a puppy for Christmas was a good one. It's probably because he still lives in an apartment building that's not big enough for a family, much less a dog. What my daughter ever saw in him is a mystery to me. But she appears to be happy, so I keep quiet. That's harder to do than you might imagine. Becky told him to pipe down. It's a Christmas wish, she said. A Christmas wish is the greatest wish of all. It's made of snow that never melts, touched by an angel sent by God. Every child is granted just one Christmas wish, a hope that lasts a lifetime. 
Andy, that's our grandson, wished for a puppy. You can't take away his one and only Christmas wish, can you? I recall watching my son-in-law squirm as I waited to hear his answer. That might have been the best part of Christmas Day for me. He relented under his mother-in-law's smile, agreeing to the puppy. The problem was that the puppy couldn't go home with them. There was a no-pets policy at the place they were living. My wife, always smiling, said, No problem. Wish can stay here on the farm with us until you have a real home. That must have stung a little bit, but I don't think she did it on purpose. That's how Wish ended up staying here with us. He wasn't much of a dog. He looked like he was made up of a dozen different breeds. Mixed together like that makes him a mutt. That damn dog chased me everywhere, always underfoot. I took him hunting with me once. Maybe he could find a use. He scared every confounded turkey within a mile away with his prancing about. He would run back over to me where I sat in the small makeshift blind with that stupid dog smile on his face as if he had just accomplished a great victory. For a dog, he had no sense of direction at all. He got lost in the cornfield more than a couple of times. Becky would send me out before it got too dark to look for Wish if he hadn't made it back by supper time. I ate cold potatoes too many times because of that damn dog. Getting lost in the cornfield is what ended up killing him. The dog also laid claim to my place. I'd come out in the morning and there he would be, all curled up in front of my rocker. I'd gently nudge him with the toe of my boot until he moved away, just enough to let me sit down. Wish would just sit, watching me drink my coffee and eat my muffin. He was waiting for me to drop a crumb or two. He'd be all over it in a flash. Wish was the only dog I ever met that liked orange marmalade more than bacon. I guess you might say that dog adopted me. It wasn't meant to be like that, but nature has a way of changing our path when we are not looking. I had never been much of a dog person. For that matter, I thought pets were for those people who were trying to fill an empty spot in their life. And that's a shame because sometimes that spot is empty for a reason. I think maybe God has reservations for that vacant parcel of land that now can't be filled by his blessings because it's occupied by a four-legged mutt that does his stuff on the floor and then watches you pick it up. I warned you I wasn't much of a dog person. I guess that's why I scratch my whiskers trying to figure out why that dog loved me so damn much. Our grandchildren came to visit us three or four times a year. Wish would greet them with dog kisses jumping up and down like my old pickup with broken leaf springs. That's the only time that damn dog wasn't under my feet. And now he's dead. What happened, she asked me, slowly rocking back and forth in her chair. Tears glittering under the morning sun rolled down her cheeks. I thought she must be talking about the dog. Can't be certain these days. I didn't know how much to tell her. All she needed to know was that Wish was dead. Our grandchildren would be here later today. Wish wouldn't be there to greet them. It was going to be hard. I found Wish this morning. He had been out all night. I guess that was my fault. I wasn't paying attention, and Becky hadn't noticed that he was still gone come supper time, so she didn't make me go find him. There are many things she doesn't notice anymore, but I should have. It was one of those sudden path changes old nature throws our way when our thoughts are muddled in something else. When he wasn't sitting in front of my rocker this morning, I headed out to the field. 
Last night, the temperatures had dropped a few degrees below freezing. Not too cold for a dog. I've seen Wish jump into the pond, smack dab in the middle of winter, chasing after a shadow. No, not too cold. If he hadn't gone into that field. But he did. That's when the mountain lion got him. Wish was dead when I found him. It looked like he had given that big cat a hell of a fight. The ground under and around his body had been trampled down to bare earth. The snow violently raked away. What remained was a dark red-brown mixture of muck. A lot of blood. Too much for one animal. I believe that big cat crawled off somewhere to die himself. I buried the dog on the north end of the field. The soil there was soft and easy to turn. No crops would be planted there for at least two more years. I said a little prayer for Wish before coming back to my place. I don't know if dogs go to heaven or not, but if Marion Becky Cross taught me anything, it's that prayers have never heard a thing. I still have mine, Becky said. She had stopped crying and was looking out at the dwindling cornfield. Where's she at, I thought. Her mind tends to wander away from the moment without any warning. I placed my hand on top of hers. You still have what, baby? I asked my wife. My Christmas wish, she smiled. For the next half hour, Becky spoke to me like she hasn't since becoming ill. She told me about when she was a little girl. She said she always saved her Christmas wish for the next year. Her family was dirt poor, farmers with brown thumbs. She always felt guilty when contemplating her wish. She knew she should wish for something her family needed, a good crop, money, maybe indoor plumbing. But the internal struggles always proved too much for a little girl, and Christmas morning would come and go with an unused Christmas wish. As she got older, she stopped believing in Christmas wishes. Before long, she forgot about them altogether. Until now. Finished telling me her story, she reached over and ran her fingers over my gray whiskers. She smiled. I love that sound. Becky stood up and walked back into the house. I sat slumped in my chair, thinking about that damn dog and her story. The day was getting colder. A wind had picked up, making the brown corn stalks dance to and fro. The sound they made was soothing, and my eyes felt heavy. I got a blanket out of the old cedar chest that sat next to the rockers and settled back down. I heard Becky moving around in the kitchen. She was singing a Christmas song that I hadn't heard in years. I pushed back in the rocker and closed my eyes. I dreamed about my back porch and orange skies. I dreamed about my wife. I even dreamed about that damn dog. I sat up too quickly, the old bones in my back cracking, startled by the sound of my grandchildren running through the house. I could hear the boy calling out, Here, Wish! Come here, boy! Shaking away my nap, I remember the dog was dead. I need to go in and tell them, but I didn't want to. This is why I never wanted dogs. They die, and somebody will have to tell the children about it. That somebody was going to have to be me, and I didn't want to do it. Damn, dog. I never heard him coming. I opened the screen door, seeing my daughter and her family standing in the middle of the kitchen. Becky was hugging our granddaughter, brushing her long blonde hair out of her face. The dog ran past me, almost knocking me on my butt. Wish! My grandson yelled. The dog jumped up onto the boy. 
He did knock him on his butt and slobbered dog kisses all over his face. I could only stand there staring. The dog was dead. I was certain of that. I looked at my work boots. I could still see dirt from the north field. I had buried that dog. I couldn't understand what was happening. Wish had no signs of the fight he had lost to that mountain lion. In fact, his coat looked brighter than ever. My grandson was laughing, trying to push the dog off. My daughter looked at me and smiled. Merry Christmas, Daddy, she said. I just stood there with my mouth hung open like a bat cave. Becky looked over at me. Her smile was so beautiful. Christmas wish, she whispered. Now let's make some pies. It's Christmas morning. As I look across the field, I think about holidays past. The lifeless corn blanketed in new snow. Christmas snow. It doesn't come every year, but you never know. I'm happy it came this year. The coffee is extra strong this morning. My English muffin sits untouched. I don't have much of an appetite. Wish is curled up at my feet. He ignores the muffin and marmalade, too. Dogs know things. I wait to hear her footsteps on the linoleum floor. She will come out, disturbing my place. She's been doing that for more years than I can count. I guess, truthfully, it was always our place. But she won't be coming. Two nights ago, the eve of Christmas Eve, I guess, I was sitting right here wondering about the chances of a white Christmas. My grandkids would sure love that. I don't think it ever snows in Southern California. I hear a crash come from the kitchen. Then my daughter screaming, Mom! She was on the floor when I ran into the brightly lit kitchen. I knew right away she was dead. The doctor said it was a brain aneurysm. She probably didn't feel a thing. That's good, I suppose. She was baking Christmas pies, or at least she thought she was. The countertop was covered in flour, white as the Christmas snow. It was on her face, and her apron too, her pretty face. But there was nothing else. No pie fillings, no pie pans, nothing. She died thinking she was making Christmas pies. She died thinking about me. A frozen wind blows across the porch. Wish moans and curls against my boots. I scratch the dog between his ears. It's okay, boy, I soothe him. I close my eyes, trying to remember. I need to remember, you see. It was too long ago to be certain. Christmas Day, when I was just a boy, usually meant doing the work my old man was too drunk to do. If I did have a Christmas wish, I'm sure I would have used it back then. But what if I didn't? I close my eyes. I see Becky smile. I wish. End of story. That was Wish by Jay Hurdle. This is a excerpt from his book, The Last Storyteller, a collection of back porch ramblings and surges of sensibility. You can follow Jay on Twitter at jhurtle underscore author. I will also leave a link to the book in my timestamp for you all if you want to go check out his book. Thank you, Jay. That ends our short story section for the podcast. Thank you all to all our writers and poets who submitted. I will have more for you next week.
I will have links for you to follow the authors in the timestamp if you liked any of the particular writers that I read today. You can also follow me on Twitter at TaylorWoodland5 to get any updates for future episodes. I recently put out a poll for a themed episode. I have decided my themed episodes will happen once a month. So starting next month, every third week of the month will be our themed episode. So October's theme by popular vote will be dragons. I will do a call for episodes for special themed episodes about a week before that episode airs. That's all the announcements I've got for you today, guys. Please remember to subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast. They really do help. This has been Not Ready for Rhyme Time, and I have been your host, Taylor Woodland. Remember, mind the gap. <laughs>